treatise, Hume claims that his account of causal necessity involves a violent paradox. Indeed, he claims it's the most violent of the work. There's pretty stiff competition for this honor, if it's really an honor, and it might be surprising to find Hume claiming that the most violent paradox of the work is to be found in his treatment of causal necessity, and not, say, in his account of personal identity, or of the belief in body, or in any of the skeptical arguments of Treatise Book 1, Part 4. So my aim today is to offer an account of just what this paradox is. Now before I get started, I just want to let you guys know if you haven't already downloaded the Beat School 101 Construction Kit, get on it. What that is, it's a free construction kit that I'm giving you guys with over a thousand drum sounds. And they're all great drum sounds that I accumulated over the course of making beats for 18 the years. The paradox like arises from the discovery that, quote, the efficacy or energy of causes is neither placed in the causes themselves, nor in the deity, nor in the concurrence of, those two, of these two principles, but belongs entirely to the soul, which considers the union of two or more objects in all past instances. Hey there, I'm Paul Kurtanowicz, and I want to talk to you about something real simple today, the time signature. Okay, it's one of the most basic principles of music. It's what I start all my students with the very first time we meet. We talk about the time signature. Unfortunately, I, I wish more uh, music teachers would talk about the time signature, but if you don't know it, it's never too late to learn. We'll talk about it now. So, here I have written 4-4, four, four, not 4-4, four, 4-4. Four, four, four. What does it mean? The top number. So this looks like the claim that facts about causal necessity are dependent, in some way, on facts about the mind. Indeed, I shall argue that Hume does hold that causal necessity is mind-dependent, and that this is the violent paradox. Moreover, Hume holds that necessary connections are mind-dependent in a particularly radical way. He seems to hold that two events are necessarily connected in virtue of a particular kind of relation that holds between the perceptions or representations of those events but in an observer's mind. There's a big difference. Sit, for example, if I was going to sit down tonight and and you know sit down at the beat machine and then I, I just got done listening to you know Pusha T's album and now I'm like oh I want a beat that sounds like track two nah 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 you don't want to do that trust me I know it's how many beats in each measure okay I wrote an example here this is a measure so we start here we go right here it's also called a bar so this is a bar line so in this bar or measure four beats. One, two, three, four. In this measure or bar, there's four beats. One, two, three, four. Okay, now the bottom number. Easy. You go to the mountains, you start an arm cell, you make revolution. And I thought, oh shit, you know, uh, that it just didn't correspond to my reality. Like those notions of constructing the arm cell, especially constructing the arm cell in the mountains and then sabotaging things, it didn't, it didn't, didn't make any sense at all. So we really had no idea how to do it. Um, not just we didn't know practically, like we didn't know which rifles to take up into the mountains. It's that the whole idea of what it involved was lacking um, and required a, a real conceptual rethinking. Thank you. 
Recently, Yolanda Gaskin spoke with Gordon Cooper. In this exclusive interview, Colonel Cooper spoke for the first time on television about his encounters with UFOs. I read about this incident you had in 1951, and you said you saw literally hundreds of unidentifiable flying objects. Yes, they were flying quite high. How high, we couldn't tell because we couldn't get anywhere near their altitude. But they were either very large craft way up or smaller craft still well above what we could get to. For a day and a half, all of this happened. But then no one wanted to talk about it. Well, we sent a report forward on it, and, and the answer that finally came back months later was they were probably high-flying seed pods, which didn't sound very logical. There are always a lot of excuses. There's always um, the, the weather balloons. I've heard that one before. Oh, yeah. In 1951, you couldn't even get close to That's the things that were flying overhead. You or anyone else that was flying. They were faster, higher. Um, instead of looking out at the world, for inspiration, start looking inside yourself for your own creative inspiration. Find out what it is that makes you you. For example, me, my um, my grandparents are from Barbados, okay? So I, I grew up around a lot of reggae and Caribbean music. So that naturally is who I am. So I find that a lot of my music takes on that certain tone. Also, my father, he, he was a cungero. He plays in salsa band. So I listen to a lot of Latin music and that tends to appear in my music too but a certain ecological process that is already there that rather than us try and figure out how to do better than we just need to know how to steward and so there's there's a shift i think in our relationship to how we moor our own knowledge within a kind of natural processes of nature which is really i'm being redundant there but really important you prompt me to discuss a, a, a friend and teacher of mine Andreas Weber, the, he's a theoretical biologist and eco-philosopher. His book, Biology of Wonder, basically takes us to this new place by reinterpreting evolutionary biology and saying that our, embody, our bodies are part of nature. Nature is not an other that's separate from us. And while this is often said rhetorically, he takes it to a very deep empirical level to show how human beings are embedded in nature Partly, I think we're rediscovering that and learning the implications of that, uh, especially in contrast to Spain. And so they brought the, came into my office and told me what had happened. And I sent them over to develop the film, and then had to go through the, all the proper regulations of reporting this. And, and we wound up having to send the film forward to Washington in the uh, base jet airplane, and. Uh, I don't know whether anyone's ever seen it since. Now, the vehicle that you just described, how similar was it to the very first sighting that you had back in 1951? Quite similar. It was basically the same plan form vehicle. They were a double saucer, lenticular. But if you're going to be going in and out of atmospheres like Earth or other places might have, you certainly need a little more aerodynamic type of vehicle and the saucer has the capability of going through the air at tremendous rates of speed and handling the bow and trailing wave without making shock waves so it can be very silent while traveling at big rates of speed through the atmosphere what is our idea of necessity when we say that two objects are necessarily connected together so hume's concern in the chapter is first and foremost a question about meaning he wants to know what we mean when we say that two objects are necessarily connected. 
many thinks we can answer this question only if we first examine what our idea of necessity is. Earlier in the treatise, Hume claims that our ordinary concept of cause includes the idea of necessary connection. However, he thinks that we don't perceive that event that causes and effects are necessarily connected upon first observing them. You certainly need a little more aerodynamic type of vehicle and the saucer has the capability of going through the air at tremendous rates of speed and handling the bow and trailing wave without making shock waves. So it can be very silent while traveling at big rates of speed through the atmosphere. Think back to fractions. You have one fourth, also you can say one quarter, okay? That denominator down here is like the denominator down there. Uh, four beats for measure, quarter gets the beat. Now these are my quarter notes. So there's one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. So Hume's overall aim in the section is to find an impression from which he thinks our idea of necessary connection is copied. Finding such an impression, Hume thinks, will help clarify the content of the idea. The mind's perceptions, according to Hume, divide into impressions and ideas, where impressions are the livelier or more forceful perceptions we have through sensation and reflection on our own minds. And ideas are the less lively and less forceful perceptions we have when we remember, believe, and imagine. But sightings of UFOs weren't limited to the military. Cooper has commercial airline colleagues who've also seen UFOs. Yes, a friend of mine, he was a captain on a major airline uh, at night, was flying along, noticed this, suddenly a big glow came off his left wing. And... That's what the time signature shows. So, you might be asking, well, what are these two symbols here? Those are quarter note rests. They get the same count as a quarter note. They get the same value as a quarter note. Hume's copy principle, which he establishes in the very first section of the treatise, holds that every simple idea is copied from a simple impression, and that every complex idea is composed of simple ideas. The copy principle thus captures Hume's semantic empiricism. The limits of what we can meaningfully think about are a function of the simple ideas Sorry, of the simple impressions we've had. And he looked out and this big saucer was sitting right off their wing. And so he turned slide toward and it moved away, turned back and it moved back in position and turned to his co-pilot and said, uh, do you see what I see? And he said, oh God, yeah, I do. If our thoughts and utterances about causal necessity are meaningful at all, there has to be some impression from which the idea is copied or impressions if the idea turns out to be complex. So one of Hume's aims in this section is to show that our thoughts about causal necessity are indeed meaningful and not just confused gibberish. Simply just don't play it. So here's a quick example. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Repeat. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Notice I repeated. This is a repeat sign. Yet Hume also thinks that identifying the impression that's the source of our idea of necessary connection helps to clarify what the content of our idea of necessary connection is. So the shape of, of Hume's argument in this section of the treatise is far from per perspicuous. And it trailed along with him for quite a period of time and tipped up, climbed very steeply away. Was on Jim McDevitt's Gemini 7 mission where they saw um, this glint of something metallic off in the distance. So for one thing, I think Hume changes directions several times. At least twice, he seems to start the argument over completely and thereby calls into questions the conclusions he seems just to have reached. So my strategy is gonna to be to try to identify what I take the central argument of the section to be 
and then to show how I think it builds on claims he establishes earlier in the work. So Hume answers the question what our idea of necessary connection is no fewer than three times in Treatise 1314. And he reported and nobody had it listed on the ground, so he tried getting a picture of it, but the sun, unfortunately, was glinting off of it. It's bright, all you got is just a glint. There was no detail on what it was. Vertical lines with the two dots. So you start here, you play it, it means you go back to the beginning, play it one more time. Lastly, I want to talk about this large C. Why did I draw a large C? It stands for common time. Any, uh, any further sighting at all on it. Years later, Cooper approached the United Nations with a proposal for a committee that would explore the UFO phenomenon. Right now, tell me about the letter to the UN. Common time and 4-4, the exact same thing. Turn on the radio right now, I guarantee you, no matter what song, no matter what station is on, no matter what genre of music, classical, Rock, uh, jazz, hip-hop, R&B. Well, the letter to the UN was uh, in conjunction with a meeting that I had with uh, Kurt Waldheim and the Security Council of the UN. No matter what, I guarantee you it's going to be in 4-4. Not to say that there are in other time signatures. There are, but today we're dealing with 4-4, and it's called common time for a reason. How do you transform human nature so that people will be capable of democracy? Lenin's solution to this problem is a properly dialectical one. He thinks, and he, this is in large part with the Soviets enact, that there has to be a negation of To democracy. try to encourage the UN to establish a committee to start comparing notes and data and information. Call it dictatorship of the proletariat, some sort of hegemonic state that would then operate the transition, that would transform human nature, then to eventually arrive at the time when people are capable of democracy, the state's no longer uh, necessary. And to really look into all of this from an unbiased, neutral point of view. Here's a quote from, from your letter. I believe that these extraterrestrial vehicles and their crews are visiting this planet from other planets and are obviously a little more advanced than we are here on Earth. And are you saying that's exactly why governments have been trying to keep this information private because of that obvious advancement? Very possibly, right. It's probably the dialectical nature of this that seems to me mistaken. How do people learn democracy? How does human nature change to become capable of democracy? Not by its opposite. It can only be done in a sort of positive development by, you can only learn democracy by doing it. And so that that seems to me, the conception, the only way it seems to me today to be able to re rehabilitate the conception of revolution. Revolution then today refuses that dialectic between purgatory and paradise. It's rather instigating utopia every day. Three, four, repeat. One, two, four. One, two, three, four. Repeat. One, two, three, four. Repeat. One, two, one, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Repeat. One, two, three, four. Repeat. One, two. Make it, make it represent you. You gotta remember, your music is a representation of who you are. So that's what you gotta do, guys. All right? Now, number two is shitty mixing. Now, this is a notorious problem throughout the beat-making community, um, especially with amateurs. Um, if, if you don't have a concept of what mixing is, I suggest that you do some research. I got links to some great great tutorials um 
you can look up Dave Pensado. He's a mixing, an industry mixing engineer who's worked on a lot of hit records, and he breaks down pieces that interact together. So there's a custodian that is a nonprofit that's incorporated. Um, that is the custodian of the assets of the network, and and then there are people that come into the network with their standalone projects and participate as sovereign units within the system. This, of course, entails that a necessary connection just is whatever it is that repeated experience produces or discovers. But then our question is, well, what would justify this assumption? We might think that Hume is entitled to claim that the impression that gives rise to our idea of necessary connection is whatever it is that's re that repeated experience produces or discovers, but not that causal necessity itself is whatever it is that repeated experience of a constant conjunction produces or discovers. But if Hume merely held that the impression that gives rise to the idea is produced or discovered by repeated experience, then I think he wouldn't be entitled to the negative semantic conclusion. He would only describe the circumstances under which we get the impression that gives rise to our idea of necessary connection. But then he wouldn't be entitled to conclude anything to think about the content of the idea. So there's textual evidence that Hume holds that causal necessity just is whatever is produced or discovered by repeated experience. Indeed, he claims, quote, wherever we find anything new to be discovered or produced by the repetition, the repetition of events or resembling events, well, it's, it's an overwhelming task because there's just dozens and dozens of such examples. We tried to sort of highlight some of them because they range from indigenous people in Peru managing the biodiversity of potatoes to time banks in Helsinki to the people who create a Libra office as an alternative uh, software program. But then Hume also describes the effect of repeated experience as a kind of impression. So he claims, quote, this determination is the only effect of the resemblance. The resemblance here is repetition of resembling events. And therefore must be the same with power or efficacy, whose idea is derived from the resemblance. So here Hume assumes that power or efficacy is produced by the resemblance. And since the resemblance doesn't produce or discover anything new in the conjoined objects, he concludes that the determination of the mind just is power, efficacy, or in general, causal necessity. Talking about when we started the uh, refugee project or whatever, so what I would like to see is um, kind to um, unlock this tacit knowledge, this kind of... Because then you would show the ones who would benefit from it and the, even the subjects, you know, the actors that would, that would conduct it. But it's, it strikes me in another way that it might be appropriate to have, to work against such a conception of, of revolution as, um, as loss and as deprivation. It makes little sense to me to say revolution can't be made in the United States or revolution can't be made in Europe because everyone's too comfortable, because they have too much to lose, etc. They too have an enormous amount to gain. When we say a better world is possible, we don't just mean a better world for those who are least off today. We mean a better world for all of us. Uh, you remove the verb to be from your speaking patterns. Uh, so I guess in German it would be sein. 
And in doing this, uh, just to use an example, even within, say, a fight with your significant other, um, you're not allowed to say you are. So you're removing is to be more, and you aren't assigning static ontologies to anything. Actually, everything spoken subjectively or in relationship to its process, and it doesn't hit these psychological notes, neurons in the brain that make people defensive. It actually allows you to talk about things as a process, and it's a practice um, if you listen to me, I haven't mastered yet, but <laughs> I'm going to work on it. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, you, you might remember that the text in our last book, where it's just called, um, The Commons Doesn't Exist, or The Commons Don't Fall From the Sky, or whatever. Actually, what I want to say there is that the Commons is a constant process of I had it right. I came back a day later, all of a sudden the beat was talking to me again. You know, it was telling me stuff that, that I didn't hear the, the 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 first day I was doing it because you know my ears got kind of kind of sick of it so that's that um, and last but not least guys a big mistake I hear is people don't have a solid understanding of musical theory remember music is a language and you gotta learn the tongue and learn how to speak that language and being a language means that there's certain rules within the language. You know, rules like timing of music. You gotta learn timing. Uh, the different keys of music. If you don't know what keys are, step your game up. Go do some research on the keys of music. Uh, also, inside of keys, you got intervals. So we cannot use an essentialism, essentialist philosophy. We need a kind of process philosophy to really assess what we are talking about. So I'm, I, I very much appreciate this little hack to uh, stop talking about exist or sign or to be and always framing a sentence like I become a commoner because that's a constant it's a way of becoming a way of becoming a different person whereas the seed of this different person is already part of my inner being before returning to the apparently confused identity claims in the next section, I want to conclude this uh, section by, con sorry, by considering why Hume makes the assumption that causal necessity just is whatever is produced or discovered by repeated experience. So I'm going to call that the assumption. So my proposal is that Hume makes the assumption because his search for an impression from which the idea of necessary connection is copied is driven by a conception of what the discovery of a necessary connection allows us to do. And it enables us to infer that a, the second event will occur whenever we witness the first. So Hume's search for an impression of necessary connection is guided by a conception of the kind of cognitive achievement. Um, so where do we go next? Um, there's obviously- To bed. Silica says to bed. Because <laughs> ah! <laughs> it's definitely later in Germany. Yep. I might want to land on some of the conditions um, that, that we need to really bring the commons alive, it really enliven the commons. And so I'd love to hear from each of you uh, some of the thoughts that you have around yeah, how do we how do we do it? What are the critical paths, and what are what are the what are what do we need to build? Like I was saying, 
chord progressions are big. You want to get to a point where you can damn near identify the chord progressions in songs. Because trust me guys, if you don't know how to do it, I'm telling you, there's other producers out there that got it down to a science. And they're gonna be running laps around you guys. So learn better theory, and I promise you, it's gonna make you a better musician and an all around better beat maker. Repeat one, two, three, four, 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 repeat one, two, three, four,